All right, we're going to go back to our looking at the four views, dealing with the issue related to the problem that we summarized with the phrase, and the phrase was... Well, remember the phrase we, we summarized the problem? Justified by faith, judged according to works. That's the problem. We're looking at the four views trying to resolve this problem. The first view, it, how did we state the first view? Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, but not at the final judgment. We spent two hours working on it this morning. We came close to fin finish, finishing that first view. I'm not going to go back through everything that we covered uh, because that would take forever. So we're just going to jump right in. So if it seems disjointed, well, go back and listen to the previous part. All right. We came to this uh, statement that says we must be clear on this. That, now, this is according to this view. We must be clear on this. Salvation is a free gift that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody remember that? Yes? Okay. We looked at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Yes? We looked at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yep. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Yes? All right. And then that's where we stop looking at scriptures. All right. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 to continue to build on this point. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Everybody there? Philippians 3, 9, which reads, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. They're making this argument. Again, what's the point they want to make clear? Salvation is a free gift that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. They're driving that point home. Why are they driving that point home? Well, if they're driving, it, the reason they're driving this point home is we can't be judged according to our works if it has anything to do with salvation and if our works have anything to do with salvation because that would make our salvation not by, not by faith, not by faith alone, not by Christ alone, not by grace alone, because there would be something else that is required. They're trying to build that case, and that's why they're quoting all of these scriptures, all right? They go on to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, and we read, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And then they want to look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness, which... We have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. All right. So they're making that absolutely clear. All right. They're, they're just they're driving that point home. All right. But they, then they continue with their point after they give all those scriptures and they say this. But rewards come as a result of work and perseverance. All right. So salvation 
comes by faith, grace, Christ. Rewards come through what? Perseverance and works. All right, now they're going to give a bunch of scriptures to try to demonstrate this principle. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which we've now been a number of times. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, say amen when you're there. Verse 14, First Corinthians chapter three, verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, right? They want us to go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. We've looked at this already a couple of times. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. Obtain this prize, right? That's what they, he's telling us to do. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we, an incorruptible. And the implication, an incorruptible what? Crown, right? Uh, verse 27, uh, verse 26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, uh, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, which when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. All right? They want us to go to James chapter 1, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that doeth temptation, for when, he is, uh, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. There's the promise of another crown. Right? We have the idea of an incorruptible crown. Paul talked about a crown in, in another passage. And then we have this crown talked about in James. Right? Everybody getting the idea? Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, uh, that no man take thy crown. Right, there's the idea of a crown, all right? And then they quote um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 to 24. That's Thessalonians, so it makes absolutely no sense. It's not enough verses. All right, here we go. All right, Colossians chapter 3, 23 to 24. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that, the, that, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Everybody get the idea? Another idea of a reward. All right, everybody see that? All right, now, here's the point. The Bible clearly seems to indicate that we're saved by what? Faith. Yet, it seems to imply that we can gain a reward based off what we do. And the Bible clearly implies that there is a judgment according to works. Their argument, how do you reconcile all of this? We're judged according to works to determine the 
reward. We are not judged according to works to determine our salvation because the salvation is based off faith. All right, everybody, everybody understand? Okay, you're going to have to be able to articulate these principles or we're going to have to reteach them because you've got to understand these views because we've got to find a way to figure out the solution. All right, this is, they go on to say this. What is remarkable is that the same speaker writer can speak of salvation as a free gift on the one hand and rewards earned by works on the other. And you'll have the same speaker do that. You'll have the same speaker say, hey, you're justified by faith. Oh, wait, now there's something about judgment according to works or wait, there's something about works and rewards. And they're they're saying that happens. And and we see Paul doing it numerous times, correct? Yes? Now, they give, they give a bunch of scriptures that we could go through. I'm not going to go through the appendix and all the scriptures they have. If we need to, we can. I think we've made it abundantly clear. So far, this is what this view has made clear. We are justified by what? Faith. There is uh, rewards based off works, and that being judged according to the, those works for a believer determines the reward. That is how they're trying to reconcile all of this together. Okay? So far, so good? All right. Now, <clears throat> now they got this in bold, and this now this will create great controversy in theological circles, but I'm going to read it as they have it. All right? They have this in bold. Not all believers persevere. Not all believers persevere. Now, they believe this is critical to their view. All right? Now, remember, there's, there's going to be a part of you who says, I, I reject that. But the minute you reject it, then what are you adding to salvation? Perseverance, which, you, which is going to include works. Right? To persevere is going to include works, right? And the minute you do that, what are you ultimately doing to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? You're, you're, you're ultimately destroying the foundations. That's their point. Now, they're going to say it's fine that a believer doesn't persevere, but what's going to happen if they don't persevere? No rewards. That's going to be their argument, all right? Now, they're going to, uh, going to go to Louis Burkhoff, uh, his famous systematic theology. Uh, he was a Reformed theologian. And if he's a Reformed theologian, he clearly believes in what? Perseverance of the saints, okay? So this is what they're, they, they're going to quote him. They say, Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff responds to, to some common objections to the doctrine of perseverance. One objection states, There are also exhortations urging believers to continue in the way of sanctification, which would appear to be unnecessary, if there is no doubt about it, uh, that they will continue to the end. All right? He says that's a common objection. Wait a minute. If, if every Christian is going to persevere to the end, then why do you have scripture that seems to encourage you to persevere if there would be no doubt about it? That's a good objection. Right? And remember, we, we use that same kind of objection when you get into a discussion about synergistic versus monergistic sanctification. Why do you have all these texts that say, put off, put on, do this, do that? If it's monergistic, I don't have to do anything. And if perseverance is guaranteed, I don't have to do anything. Right? 
Everybody understand? Now, this is how Burkhoff responds to this objection. He counters this objection with, and then they got it in quotes, but these are usually found in connection with the warnings against apostasy and serve exactly the same purpose. They do not prove that any of the believers exhorted will not persevere, but only that God uses moral means for the accomplishment of moral ends. I don't really understand that as being an answer in any way, shape, or form. Okay, all right, but okay. They go on to say, but this is no answer at all. I kind of agree. I don't really think that that's much of an answer. Okay. If God guarantees that believers will persevere, then they will persevere with or without warnings. Even if, even if they tried, they would not be able to fall away. If you're a true believer, even if you tried to fall away, you couldn't fall away if it's guaranteed. Now, of course, the, the, the easy way out for them is as soon as someone doesn't persevere, they never were. That's their, that's their get out of free, you know, get out of jail free card. Oh, you didn't persevere. You're lost. You're, oh, you, you're lost. Oh, you're lost. Oh, you're lost. Okay, that's all. That's, that's the easy way out. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the lordship view. That's the common, you know, uh, Baptist view. Hey, you're once saved, always saved. However, if you do this, 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 and this, you're never saved. So that's how you get out of free. You still have, so then you, only the true people will persevere and all the false people won't persevere. But who gets to determine who's true and who's false? Again, how many people would have said David? Lost. Solomon? Lost. Okay. Right. Now Saul may have been. Okay. We, we could have. Oh. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. I see what you're saying. Right. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I see what you're saying. All right. Um, so, but there was all these situations where we would be making judgments, right? And we would, we, and, and it, clearly from the Bible, we would have been what? Wrong. Right? Now, what uh, reform view comes back, so yeah, I mean, for a short period of time, we'd have been, uh, we would have not understood David, but ultimately he repented, so therefore it should. But again, that's such an iffy, when do you have to repent? You know, like, you know, how, how it's, just, it's just a very yeah, di- difficult way. It's like you're trying to demand perseverance, but then, remember, even the London Baptist Confession of Faith allows that you can fall into sin, grievous sin, and I don't even tell you for how long you can be in it. Well, if, let's say you become a Christian, you're a Christian for five years, you fall into grievous sin for 20 years, right? You come, you come back and repent, and you die a year later. Was that perseverance? No, it's not, because clearly you spent most of your life where? In grievous sin. Now, see, these are questions nobody's ever going to answer because they're like, oh, don't worry about it, they repented. So as long as you repent, you're good. Well, how is that perseverance? I made a profession, I lived in absolutely open rebellion for 25 years, I repented, and then died a year later. Woo! Persevered. That's some good perseverance. And that's some good... Yes, that's a good, my perseverance would have been in sin. Like, I don't even understand how you do that. But okay, this is what they say. And we're going to get right back into that argument with some of these other views because they're going to try that same thing. 
A much better way to approach this dilemma is simply to admit that appeals to persevere in the New Testament are legitimate warnings. That's how they say we should approach it. When we read the Bible and it tells you to persevere and it gives you, there are legitimate warnings. It's not, it's not a guarantee that you're going to do it. It's a command for you to persevere. Just like it's a command for you to put off the old, put on the new, mortify the flesh, etc., etc., etc. Flee fornication, you know, resist temptation, you know, all those things that the Bible gives about 900 warnings about. By this very nature, warnings suggest that believers may, in fact, fail to persevere. Therefore, they should not be twisted into promises guaranteeing that saints will persevere. We do not find such promises, nor do we find salvation depending on perseverance. All right? Now, they have... They have a chart here that I can't, I'll have, to, I'll have to get a copy of it. I'll try to get a copy of it because I think it would be helpful. But um, they're going to look at some different passages of Scripture. So we'll come back to it at some point. But get the, we, we get the basic idea. All right. So what is, their, what is their argument so far? Their argument is justification is by what? And, they, and this is the one view that could stress the next word. Alone. So what is not required for your salvation works. If you don't persevere, not the issue. That would, what would, what would uh, not persevering impact? No reward. It can't impact your salvation because salvation is by faith alone. By faith alone. Which they gave us all those verses that seem to indicate that we're saved by faith alone. All right? So th- now... To say that a Christian doesn't have to persevere, we immediately want to reject it. I understand. I, I mean, when I was a young, I mean, I reject, I would have rejected that outright forever. But at some point, you've got to think that other position through, and the other position through is kind of like, well, wait a minute. So you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You have to do this, and immediately, what word am I destroying? The alone part. All right, so that... We've got, we've got to go through that. I'd like to uh, go through that chart, but the Kindle version, you can't see it. So I'll need to uh, get a different copy of it so that I can go through the chart. But we'll move on. Now, they go on to say, answering biblical objections. Now, there's going to be people who offer biblical objections to this view. Right? Agreed? And we know it, right? Because is there any actual agreement on this argument in Christianity? No, there is not. Right? So we'll see if we can... Um, We'll, we'll see what, how they respond to objections. All right. One, I guess one of the objections used is Matthew chapter 24 through Matthew chapter 25. All right. Now, the only problem with this is for, for sake of us moving forward, we're not going to be able to go through Matthew 24 and 25 right now. We may have to put it on. Yeah. There'd be a lot of problems with Matthew 24 and 25. I don't know if this issue is the problem with Matthew 24 and 25. It's usually an issue more dealing with eschatology than it is this subject. But let's see what they have to say. All right. In his commentary on Matthew, D.A. Carson introduces chapter 24 by stating, Few chapters of the Bible have elicited more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Stop right there. Now, why is that critical to take note of? 
All right. If it's one, if if this, if these chapters are one of the most disagreed upon in Bible and the Bible, then you have to at least stop and go. Well, wait a minute. How are we going to draw any major conclusions from? But the same objection is their, their use of a parable. Remember, their whole foundational passage to their argument was a parable, right? We could offer the same objection there. Okay, so let's see what else they do here. All right. Um, the history of the interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. Indeed, the way we interpret this discourse is crucial for how we understand Jesus' teaching on perseverance. Many contend that Jesus teaches perseverance as a condition for final salvation. The context, however, shows otherwise. Now stop right here. I want to make sure everyone hears that. Some teach that perseverance is a condition for final salvation. Now, the minute you say that, what have you literally destroyed? I mean, it just, it is. Now, now you can try to rework it, and you can try to reword it. You can say, well, no, 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 because you remember what they're going to say. No, 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 you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves you won't remain alone. Okay, well, that's wonderful, but what happens if it does remain alone? Well, you were never saved. So what is required for me to be saved? Faith plus... All right? So I, already, if you're going to make an argument that Matthew 24 and 25 is going to teach perseverance as a condition for final salvation, you're literally making an argument for salvation by works. I mean, you literally are making that argument. All right? Look at Matthew 24, 13. Matthew 24, 13. And what do you read? But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. All right. That sounds like what? Perseverance. And what's, what do you have to do to be saved? Door to the end. Okay. So what do you do with a verse like that? Well, remember, obviously, whatever you do with this verse, what can you not forget? All those other scriptures that says you're saved by what? Faith alone, right? He didn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. However, you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, to be Like, that's, that's the problem. So how are they going to respond to a verse like Matthew 24, 13? All right. Now, obviously we'll listen to their response, but what would be required for us to try to answer it? Okay. Now, what's Matthew 24 about? Does anybody know? Right. That it, it clearly, it seems to be, at least in part, dealing with, with 70 AD, no question about it, and then it may jump, it may jump to future, dealing with the tribulation, something along those lines. But either you're dealing with 70 AD or tribulation kind of situation, right? Those are your two options, correct? Okay, or somehow a combine of both. All right, so right there already says, I got to be careful about making this soteriological specifically because I got a lot of other issues going on. But this is how they respond to it. Jesus' declaration that he who endures to the end will be saved 
would appear to put an end to the rewards view. They would argue that some would say this verse destroys the rewards view. All right, that's, I think that's fair. All right. In truth, though, there is more to this verse than meets the eye. Context is everything, and we must clarify the context Jesus has in mind. First, what end is in view? In short, it is the future eschatological tribulation, uh, and they're, so they're going to put it towards the tribulation. That's where they're going to put it. Now, you could argue that it's historical, right? That if you endure till the end of whatever's going to happen in 70 A.D., You'll be saved, okay? In other words, it's just making a general observation, all right? If you make it into the future, again, if you put it in, in the past, we don't have to worry about it. And if you put it in the future, then it would only pertain to whom? Whoever's in the tribulation, right? Does that make sense? So either way, you ha- you, you, there's some ways around this, okay? But let's see what they, they do. Uh, the Old Testament background for Jesus' statement can be found in Daniel. Remember, we looked at Daniel when we studied this. I'm not going to go back through all of it again. We see this from Matthew 24, 15, where Jesus warns his hearers about the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Daniel prophesied that history would run for another 70 years or weeks. Remember Daniel 9, 24, and 27? I'm not going to go through all of that again. With an undisclosed gap between the 69th and 70th seven. The last period consists of one seven-week, Daniel 9, 27, which suggests that this time of tribulation will last seven years. It is during this end time period, according to Daniel, that the abomination of desolation occurs. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The end, then, is the end of the age, a phrase that only occurs once outside um, of outside Matthew. All right, and they give some other scriptures here. This end will come after a period of tribulation unlike anything experienced since the beginning of the world. See Matthew 24, 21. Everybody see that? Yes? All right. Second, what is this future salvation of which Jesus is speaking? The term save occurs twice in chapter 24. The latter being verse 22 where Jesus says those that unless those days of tribulation were cut short, no flesh would be saved. Jesus is not talking about eternal salvation. His point is that no one would physically survive the tribulation if God did not limit its duration. Since only enduring believers will survive, no unfaithful believers will be alive at the end of the tribulation. We find further support for this in Matthew 25 uh, to be discussed shortly. So they are arguing that this is... When he says, you'll endure to the end, you'll be saved, he's talking about what? Physical, physical salvation, not a spiritual salvation. All right. Maybe so. Maybe not. Here's the point. I, there's no way to try to prove your point with that passage. Everybody agree? There's just no way. You got, is it 70 AD? Is it not 70 AD? Is it the future? It's not the future. And then you got to go there. I mean... You, 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 got, you would have to spend 50 hours just trying to prove what the passage is about before you can make an argument about, oh, this destroys your rewards view. You've got to come up with a better verse than that to destroy the rewards view. All right? The next passage they want us to look at is Matthew 25, 45 to 51. 
All right. Matthew 20, or I'm sorry, Matthew 24, 45 to 51. Sorry. Matthew 24, 45 to 51. Everyone there? All right, let's read it. Who then is faithful and who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over, over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and to drink with the drunken, uh, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, appoint him his a portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. That passage is far better at making an argument than the previous passage. All right? Everybody agree? The previous passage is not much help because you got too much eschatological issues going on. This one, oh, this one sounds a lot like the parable that we read. Right? You got servants. They're, they're, instead of working, what are they doing? What's the evil servant doing? He's beating up people. He's eating and drinking and getting drunk. And what happens to him? There should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds like judgment. Now remember, in the parable, the servants were good. Just the citizens got this. Ah, this, this one is problematic. Okay, now you see how, how many different passages relate to this subject? Now this is a parable again. Basically, it's another parable. So now we got kind of competing parables, which makes this almost impossible to figure out how to do. Let's see what they do with this and see if they have a decent response. In this parable, Jesus discusses a servant who was serving faithfully, but who lost faith in his master, soon returned, and then became an unfaithful and wicked servant. But if that bad or wicked servant should say in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and should begin to beat his fellow servants, all right, they're going to go through and read what we just read, all right. In this parable, the servant is doing well, and is in position to rule when his master returns. However, he gets tired of waiting, and becomes reckless. As a result, his master will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites where there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This refers to a painful experience in which the servant is verbally cut up at a future judgment. Yeah, that's what they say. Now, of course, you know what verse they have as a cross-reference? Hebrews 4.12, which is kind of just... That's kind of reaching. Where the Bible's sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, right. Say, so that's, that's, that's convenient. All right? So they're arguing that, the, that he's going to be verbally cut up. All right? Since this person is a servant of Christ, it is the judgment seat of Christ that is in view and not the great white throne judgment. Believers are judged at the former and not the latter. Remember, that's been their whole point. Right? Furthermore, since faithfulness is the issue, not faith, eternal rewards rather than eternal destiny are at stake. The reference to weeping and gnashing of teeth is an oriental expression of grief and pain. 
The New Testament elsewhere affirms that unfaithful believers will incur, incur rebuke, resulting in grief and pain at the judgment seat of Christ. All right, so what argument are they making? That this is referring to a believer being judged at the judgment seat of Christ and is simply being verbally cut asunder and is weeping and gnashing of teeth because he is rebuked for his failure, but it has nothing to do with his salvation. It would show a loss of reward. Right? Well, every view is, is offered on presumptive. Every view is it. Every view is it. Yeah, I mean, right. I, th- I mean, that would be a better answer than what they're trying. The better answer is, this is a parable. Let's not turn this into a whole discussion about how judgment's going to work. What's the point here? You don't know when he's going to come back. So stay busy, do what you're supposed to do, and don't be running around beating up people and getting drunk. Right? That's a better response. Now, however, the same argument could be said about the other parable. That the other parable wasn't supposed to teach how judgment's going to work. It was simply teaching us that you don't know when he's going to come back. All right? So, you, you can make the argument either way. Does that make sense? Now, the only thing is the Luke 19 parable at least had 1 Corinthians 3 to back it up a little bit. All right? You you can kind of see how they would connect. This one, (laughs) you're you're having some problems with this one. Agreed? Now, let's be fair. If you don't put this, if you don't go with their view that this is just a believer, right, who's going to face some severe judgment at the judgment seat of Christ and lose his reward... If you take it out of that and say this is a, a, a servant who's going to face judgment, then you're going to have a judgment based off what? Works that's going to determine salvation. Now, here's the problem. If you go with that, if you go with that, which sounds good, then what are you contradicting? I don't know, 50 verses, 60, I mean, how many, verse, how many verses could we get about being saved apart from our own righteousness? And we... I don't even know how many we've already read. We're probably 20 already in. I probably could give you another thir- I probably could give you another 20 or 30 without any problem. For God so loved, believe on Christ, you're saved. How, what, what, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's over and over and over and over and over and over. So if I say, wait, here's a servant. He did bad. He gets judged. Now he goes to hell. Then you're arguing that I'm, I'm being judged according to my works, which is going to determine my salvation. That's a problem. Or this could be used to preach another doctrine. That you can lose your salvation. This would be a, probably a very popular passage for those who believe you can lose your salvation. You could do a hundred different things with this. Others would argue, no, 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 you can't lose it. He never had it. Okay, well, but again, what are you still saying that's required for salvation? Works. That's, uh, you're getting into problems, all right? Now, they have a number of scriptures here where they talk about the judgment seat of Christ and people experiencing some kind of loss, but we'll, 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 I'm trying to advance this as much as we can. All right, they want us to look at Matthew 25, 1 through 13. 
All right, everybody there? Now, please note, all the objections to this view come from what? Parables. Please note, all the objections to this view come from parables. That's, that's, that's a bad thing. However, to be fair, their main argument they gave us was from a parable. <laughs> they should have made what is their main argument? 1 Corinthians 3 is what they should have made for their main argument. Well, we'll see if it's listed. We haven't finished the chapter, but we'll see. If not, we'll go to James 2, okay? All right? We've got to be fair to We'll let them argue for themselves, right? But so far, all they've given us is parables. And the next one is Matthew 25, 1 through 13, okay, which is a parable. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil and their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all, these, all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but you go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not, you know not neither the day nor the hour where the Son of Man cometh. All right. Here, you can see how this could be interpreted, right? Yes? Okay, I'm going to read what they have to say, but I think you can see. The parable of the ten virgins is often understood to refer to the final judgment. Yet all ten, all, ten virgin, all ten are called virgins, an odd name for unbelievers. All right, and then they give some different passages. Okay, maybe. I guess. Maybe it's an odd name. Maybe it isn't. All right. I mean, it's a parable, right? Okay, so on. All ten are expecting the bridegroom soon return. Again, this would be at odds for unbelievers. Now, that's true. Yeah, unbelievers aren't looking around waiting for Christ to return. I agree there. All ten have oil to light their torches, but only five have sufficient reserves of oils to keep their tor- torches lit. The five with insufficient supply are not told that if they simply believe in the bridegroom, he will give them the needed oil. As Plummer points out, they were told to go and buy the needed oil themselves. So what does the presence or absence of sufficient reserves suggest? The midnight cry here refers to the abomination of desolation. Now, now we're going to start trying to connect this to tribulation. Okay, now this is already getting in, already getting into iffy interpretive waters here, but let's see what they have to say. Uh, the midnight cry here refers to the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. The point is that only tribulation believers who have stored up sufficient spiritual reserves in the first half will make it successfully through the persecutions of the second half. And those excluded from the, what they call the torch dance and other wedding festivities um, while saved will fail to rule with Christ and life to come. It is a stretch to think exclusion from the torch dance equals spending eternity in hell. All right, that's... I, I, forget that nonsense. Okay, that's just... 
No, that's just, that's just ripping, who knows? I mean, you're just ripping all kinds of things out of context. You're just ripping all, all kinds of things out of context. Here's what I will say. Um, this is another parable that at least seems to, what do these parables seem to have in common? The, the one thing the parables have in common so far is you don't know when he's going to return. Work until he returns and be ready for his return. That is one thing they all have in common so far. Agreed? Now, and again, what are your options with these parables? Your options is either to say that your judgment's going to be based on works, and if you don't have enough works, you're not saved, and if you go with that, what are you absolutely throwing out? 40, 50 verses that seem to teach something absolutely opposite to that. That can't, I can't use a parable. Remember, what's the biblical, what's one of the key elements in hermeneutics? How do you understand the unclear? Clear, okay. 30 verses that are absolutely clear that I am justified by what? Faith alone, not by works. I mean, those passages like go over the top, right? Not, not, Not my righteousness. Remember, Paul said, not my righteousness, but a righteousness that comes by faith. Not a righteousness that comes by works, right? Over and over and over and over and over and over. All right, I can't just discount all of that and say, hey, guys, you want to know if you're saved? Well, here's the key. You got to do this, 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 and hopefully you are. That's what these parables could lead to. These parables do present a problem, though. They do pre- present a problem. Um, I mean, the only thing we know about the, the ten virgins is the ones who don't, they're shut out and, of the marriage. Now, what is that, is, that, is that to be taken to the literal marriage supper of the Lamb? Now, if we do put this to the marriage supper of the Lamb, then you may be dealing with tribulation. Right? That's probably what they're doing. The only marriage we know of is the marriage supper of the Lamb, correct? Which appears in the book of Revelation chapter 19, right? Which occurs at the end of the tribulation, if we're reading Revelation. So that's probably why they're making that argument. You could try to make that argument. And so they're being shut out of that. Didn't say they're shut out of heaven. You could make an argument there, but you've got to do a lot of work to try to get there. All right. They, want it. they have another common objection. Matthew chapter 25, 14 through 30. Now we have the parable of what? The talents, all right? All right, let's read this. For the kingdom of heaven, starting in verse 14. Man, I thought we were going to finish this view, but we're not. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his uh, several ability, and straightway took his journey. Now this is different than the parable that they used in Luke, where everyone gets the same amount. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Right? Very similar to the other, but there's some differences. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and reckon, reckoneth with them. 
So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides uh, them five talents more. The Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also, uh, he also, he also that had received two uh, talents came and said, Lord, thou uh, deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents besides them. The Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I know thee that art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not uh, strawed. Okay, that's right. That old English there. Verse 25. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, therein thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reapeth where I sowed not, and gather well where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury. This is very similar to the Luke. I mean, eerily similar, but there's enough differences that clearly it's two different parables, right? Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto uh, him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh boy. Now you sounds like judgment, which determines heaven or hell agreed all right this is what they say the lord then explains the judgment of the third servant this parable contains the the last of the three new testament outer darkness passages once again since a servant of christ is being judged now this is what they're going to claim the judgment seat of christ is in view the fact that he is judged to be an unfaithful servant does not mean he is going to hell Hell is not for believers. Then the one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I know that you are a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered seed. And since I was afraid, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, have what is yours. But this the master answered and said unto him, You wicked and lazy servant. Therefore take from him, they quote the whole section here, uh, cast him in outer darkness. I mean, they go on and on. All right. The outer darkness, this is what they say, is more literally to be translated the darkness outside. Right? Maybe, maybe not. We, we'd have to, that gets into an argument how you arrange the Greek words, okay? But all right. Jesus is alluding to a brightly lit banquet hall outside of which is darkness. Since this parable is parallel with the one discussed above in Luke chapter 19, the fate of the third servant is the same. But recall that in Luke's parable, the third servant is not slain, which means he is admitted into the kingdom. The same is true here in Matthew. Therefore, though he is in, therefore, though he is in that believer will miss out in the joys associated with ruling with Christ. The weeping and gnashing of teeth merely indicates that there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. That's, 
that's rough there. They go on to say, Elsewhere, John urges believers to persevere so as to avoid shame at Christ's coming. Shame is a real possibility for believers when Christ returns. Indeed, we can understand why it is that those who belong to Christ and yet are found unfaithful would grieve and be ashamed at the moment they see the look of disapproval on their Lord's face. All right? Um, in this passage, we read of the, uh, well, now then they, they want to go, they want to move on to another passage in Matthew, but before we get there, all right, they tried the same thing with this. So basically, what are they going to do? Any parable where you have a servant that is cast out into outer darkness and there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, they immediately say, what about these passages? It's not hell, it's simply Shame and grief for losing reward. That, that, would, uh, that would require a massive... Uh, here's the problem. Uh, we've always, we, almost all Christians read weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness as being related to what? Mm-hmm. After, right, wedding garments. Yeah, I mean, you got you would have to be consistent. Yeah, you, you, that one would be. Uh, so, I'm not a fan of this approach. I'm not a fan of this approach. In, in. Well, right. Yeah. Well, no, well, that's a whole different argument. Yeah, you would have to argue that that one is not referring to hell either. Yeah, so, I mean, that would make a decent argument. How did he get there? Be there and then get thrown out? Right, that that, that leads to a different argument. So, but, okay, so let's let's try to be as fair as we can. And I, I, I do admire one thing about this view. Well, no, they're, they're giving the passages that are, are very damaging to their view. I mean, they're not, they're not ignoring them. They're not just like, hey, don't... I mean, they, could, they already made their argument. They could have just closed out the chapter. Okay. Right? Do I? With their favorite passage, but they did not. I mean, they're giving us these views. They're acknowledging them. I will argue that these, view, these passages are very difficult. But if we take these passages, all these ones that we have, they, what, what view would they ultimately teach? All the, all the parables that we've looked at that they've given as objections that are offered up to their view, what would these parables ultimately teach us about judgment? Salvation by works. I mean, there's no way to get around it. And if they teach us salvation by works, then what can we not say? By faith alone. Which would go against a lot of verses. There's got to be a better way to reconcile this. We're still coming up with the same problem, are we not? All right. They want us to read Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Now we know, you can just look at this one. We know this one. He gathers the, the sheep and the goats. You know, hey, he separates them based on when I was hunger, hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Those who do those things, they're good to go. Those who don't, are not, right? 
Everybody see that? Who's gathered together in these passages? All the nations. Now, we have made an argument before that this passage seems to be judging nations on entrance into the millennial kingdom. On how they treated Israel, right? That, that one may, and this one, this passage makes no sense. If you get, if you get away from that, this passage makes no sense. Because you literally, therefore, are going to judge people. Heaven and hell is literally determined on what you did either for Israel or for people. So then you'd have to ask yourself, how many people have you fed who are hungry? How many people have you clothed who are without clothes? How many people have you visited who are in prison? Okay, now if we're going to start judging heaven and hell based off that, okay, <laughs> there's going to be, there's nobody making it to heaven. Okay, all right. So th- this one we could put in a different, uh, a different judgment and we could, we could you know, we get there. Now, um, they go on with a lot of different arguments here about this one um, because I don't think anyone knows, right? Um, let me see. I'm, I'm just quickly viewing, uh, going through this. Yeah, they, they, they turn this to uh, about how people treated Israel, how the Gentile nations treated Israel. They talk about this to be admittance into Christ's kingdom. Um. Okay, so yeah, they, they go on and there's all kinds of discussions here, here about this one. I would say this one is very, th- this one definitely is difficult, but there's possible ways around that one. Okay, possible way. They have, uh, they go to another one, um, another passage. We're going to go past that one. I was going to try to see if they, uh, man, they, 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 they list every objection known to mankind. Okay? They got objections I didn't even know existed here. They've got passage after passage after passage here um, making an argument. So we're going to have to wrap this up because we're out of time. Wow. They go on for pages. Pages. I think they go through every scripture in the Bible that possibly is an objection. Okay, I, I got to give them nothing but credit for this. Okay, I mean, who who would do? Th- I mean, by the time you're done with all these objections, I don't even know if you're going to believe their view. They they may actually do more damage to their view than they do good. I mean, they got charts. They got. I'm still clicking pages. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I can't even get to the end. I can't even get to the end. They just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. All right, so we got to try to find some way to some. Wow. Whew. They go, they, I, I don't even know how many more pages. They got like 30 more pages, 40 more pages of, of all the objections. They are clearly aware that people are going to throw out some objections to their view. They are. But I think we can at least summarize this. Any objection, let's, let's do this. Any objection to the view that Christians will be judged at the rewards judgment and not at the final judgment and that Christians will be judged according to their works to determine reward, not salvation. Any objection to that that is offered ultimately requires what belief? Works are required for salvation in some way, shape, or form. There's, just, there's no other way around it. 
I mean, every passage they're going to come to are going to be people, but, but, but what about this verse? And what about this verse? But please note, for every verse you come to offer an objection, what can be offered to counter that objection? Yeah, all those scriptures. That, I mean, that's why they gave us all of them, right? And we could go on and on and on. John chapter 3, verse 16. What is your salvation based off of? Believe in Christ. Uh, you know, um, Galatians, Galatians 2. Paul makes it clear. We're not saved according to our works. If, we're, if, we're judged, if we are saved according to our works, then we can boast. But we can't boast because we're not saved according to our works. That is stated over and over and over and over again. Every objection ultimately, and, and we could go through all the objections, but ultimately what are we going to be left with? Salvation by works. To some, some way, and that, that's a major problem. And it's a major problem because we've got way too many verses that say completely the opposite. Right. Well, if it's by works, then, yeah, it comes into, um, it comes in. Now, they do at the end of this, if you get close to the end, they come back to go through all the passages again, right? That uh, says we're saved by, uh, we're saved by uh, faith alone. I mean, they're going to come back and drive that point home. All right? Um, man. Right. Uh, I'll just read. I finally got to the conclusion. Finally got to the conclusion. I'll read their conclusion and we'll stop. Man, whew, they go through a lot. I do, I do respect that, though. Okay? I, it'll be interesting to see if the other views are willing to give every known objection under, under the sun. Okay? This is what they say. No one, conclusion, no one can be sure that he or she will persevere in faith and good works. If Paul thought he could be disqualified for the prize, 1 Corinthians 9.27, then so should we. But that uncertainty concerns only the prize, not eternal life. If we believe the promise of everlasting life, then we are, then we are assured. It's that simple. We do not look to our works for assurance. We do not harbor hidden fears that we will appear at the final judgment only to find we were never saved. Rather, we believe Jesus promised that the one who believes in him has everlasting life, that is in the present tense, shall not come into ju- uh, judgment, future tense, but has passed from death into life, past tense, right? John 5, 24, right? That one verse gives us salvation in the present, in the future, and in the past. We have been saved, right? We rejoice in this security. Let us not go through life fearful of the final judgment. Believers will not be judged there, right? And then they stop, and then they, uh, they have some responses by other authors to this view. Right? So now we're going to even get more objections. We're even going to get more objections. That is, the, that is the basis of their whole argument. The basis of their whole argument is the Bible makes it clear. In fact, let's just look at it and we'll close with this. John chapter 5, I think that was verse 24 that they were making reference to. Everybody there? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, or has everlasting life, they say there's present tense, and shall not come into condemnation, 
future tense, uh, but is past from death into life, past tense. That's the verse that they really are clinical to cling to. We are saved. If we believe, if we hear and believe, we are saved. End of story. If we say that that's not true, then we got to say, why did Jesus get it wrong? Why did Paul get it wrong? Why did everyone get, get it wrong? All right. How you reconcile this, I don't know. The, the best attempt that they offered is what? So let's just, what's the best attempt that they have given us to try to reconcile it? We are justified by faith. We're going to be judged according to our works, but that will only determine reward. Reward. And if, when we have that judgment, they also say that's going to be embarrassing, it's going to be shameful, it's going to cause weeping and gnashing, according to them, they use that phrase, and that it's not going to be a good day. But it will not impact our salvation. And then what's the best passage they have to argue this? 1 Corinthians 3 would be the best passage they have to argue this. Those other passages that contradict it, they are difficult. Would we all agree? Yes. But if we go with them, what are we left with? Works. And then, what's, but guess what we could do with those views? We could offer all the passages as objections, and there would be a lot of them. Because they'd have to say, what, 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 what? So what we'll do is we'll look at their, the responses, and we'll look at the other views, and we'll see what they have to do. All right, any questions? Any questions? Just if I go through every objection, we'll never get done with this. So I had to kind of speed up a little bit. Does that understand? I mean, we get the, they're going to, the objections are any verse that seems to indicate salvation by works or judgment that determines heaven or hell. Right. So, that, and there's a plenty of those. It, it, if there wasn't plenty of those, then this would be simple, correct? There wouldn't be four views if it was simple. Yeah, they're going, to be ma- they're going to be using those verses as their proof text. Right? And then guess what? When the other side objects, they'll use the other ones. All right? Which demonstrates this is not an easy subject. And not an easy subject. Not an easy subject. But um, I will say this. If you go with any kind of judgment according to works, you, you, I can, I absolutely, this is what I'll say. If you believe in judgment according to works... You have to throw out total depravity. You're going to have to have some form. You're going to have to have some form of Pelagian or semi-Pelagianism. You're going to have to. You're going to have because there's no way you would ever be able to work enough to even be saved. So you'd have to believe that you have the sinful nature has been eradicated or taken care of somehow. You'd have to do something. You'd have to either believe that when you become saved, the sinful nature is eradicated which is getting a little close to what MacArthur did, right? Or you just have to believe in a semi-Pelagian, Pelagian understanding of it. Because total depravity would almost destroy even the ability to do enough good works to ever be saved. Agreed? I mean, a lot of people in the Bible did things that God blessed, right? Right? But doing enough works to get salvation would require what kind of works? Perfect works. 
which would, uh, which would mean that they were done without what? T being tainted with what? Because I would believe every good work that we've done is tainted with sin. They could never be enough for, they could be good enough for a reward because God is not simply rewarding what you've done. That has nothing to do with salvation. But for salvation, it would have to be, like that, that would, I think you're going to end up having to change your whole view of, of depravity with those other views. I, th I think so. I mean, I don't know how else you're going to get there. Because if you believe you can do enough works to be saved, I'm sorry. And that's ultimately what happened to the Catholic Church. They condemned Pelagius and then became Pelagian, semi-Pelagian. Semi-Pelagian at bad. I mean, they basically became semi-Pelagian. By the Council of Trent, you're kind of almost there. Right? Because your works have to somehow merit God's favor to some, in some way, shape, or form. That's major. Like, now you've got, you got to bring in another doctrine you've got to change. So, what? man, I hate, those, I hate those parables, don't you? I hate those. If it wasn't for those parables, we could be. We, we, this view was sounding so good, but have to have to completely learn how to reread those parables. Unless we, unless um, everyone is making a mistake by, re, we should just throw out the parables and go with First Corinthians three, because all the if we if we because now we're using parables to try to teach a doctrine which is literally not what you're supposed to do. It's not what you're supposed to do. All right. So all right. It's just interesting, no, nowhere in the objection they use James. Well, I think because James is easier to possibly answer, because the idea of being justified in front of men versus being justified in front of God, I think that there's a, way, there's a common way that James is answered that clearly that they think is good enough, but there clearly is not good answers for those parables. That, because they, they don't seem to be... Uh, because I think even when, they re when, when people uh, go and argue against it, other than maybe the Catholic Church may use James, but I don't think anybody else is going to argue is going to use James. So, I don't know. That's an interesting thought right there. So, we'll have to see. I mean, they get every other objection. You think James would have been one of the top ones, but they don't even, uh, they don't even mention it because I don't think, uh, I, I think that there's enough books written to try to answer James. I think the parables, there's not a lot of books written on how to answer it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Far more difficult message tonight than this morning. Lord, I pray that those, these parables, we've, we've, we've got Matthew 24, we have Matthew 25. Everyone this week can read them and think about them. Uh, Lord, very difficult passages of Scripture that really cause us to question this view. But Lord, I pray that as we continue to move forward, whatever difficulties we have with this view, we have to be prepared that every view coming after it's going to have its own uh, set of difficulties, and then we're going to be left at the end to try to figure all of this out. Um, I pray that if we need to go back and, and look at any of this again, that we will take the time to do so. There is a desire, I know, to just move on and be done, but we can't until we really come up with some biblical answers for these difficult problems. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...